Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I call your attention this morning to the 11th chapter of the Hebrew letter. I want to read verses 4 through 6. And the apostle writes in verse 4, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now we're asking the question, as we look at this tremendous chapter, how is it possible to keep going when the journey of life is so difficult? I wonder if you've ever considered that question. How can the child of God keep going when there are so many burdens and challenges along the way? That's really the focus of the last part of the Hebrew letter, endurance, perseverance, keeping on, keeping on, never giving up or giving out or giving in. The biblical word for it is patience. As he says in chapter 10, verse 36, you have need of patience, that is perseverance, staying power. And he tells us in the 12th chapter, the very next chapter, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So the Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a 100-yard dash. It's a marathon, 26.2 miles, and it takes staying power. You have to keep going. You can't get halfway through the race and then hang up the cleats. We must believe to the saving of the soul. And you might wonder today, Brother Mike, is it possible to keep going? And chapter 11 of Hebrews tells us many people in the past facing the same challenges that we do right now have been faithful to God all the way to the finish line. What we have in this chapter is a roll call of the faithful. Abel, Enoch, and then Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and Rahab the harlot, And many, many others are mentioned in this chapter as people who have proven to us that we can persevere even though life is difficult. My beloved, may I say that that's the challenge each one of us faces as we get older, is to hit the finish line strong, not to give up before we finish the race. Maybe you're 70 or 80 years of age here today or more. And you wonder, Brother Goins, it's just so challenging in the current climate to be faithful to Christ. I mean, there are so many distractions, so many reasons to lay out or to give up or to just despair of the whole thing. I mean, I just wonder if we're not beating our head against the brick wall and the wall has not moved and my head is sore. Is there any sense to what we're doing so far as serving the Lord is concerned? My friends, may I say, we have reason to make this the priority of our lives. 
So you say, Brother Mike, how is it possible to keep going when the journey of life is so difficult? And the answer in this passage is the just shall live by faith. Living by faith is the great need of the hour. You say, well, Brother Goins, I'm looking all around and I see all of these pressures. Well, then stop looking around by sight and start looking unto Jesus by faith. Run this race looking unto Jesus. That's what it means to live by faith. Your eye of faith is fastened on Christ, even though you can't see him physically right now. He's real nonetheless. The just shall live by faith. It's the only way to live for the child of grace in this world. The last time we focused our thoughts together on the important role that faith can fill in our lives, and only faith can fill that role. You know, the primary claim of our increasingly secular society is that science is the savior that the world needs, and that faith is either irrelevant or even directly opposed to reason. That's the view of atheists like Richard Dawkins. And sadly, I suggest more and more people have subscribed to the notion that science is the savior we need with a kind of intense emotional investment that borders on religious devotion. In fact, they even use religious language today and say things like trust the science. That's religious language, isn't it? They're saying have faith in science. And that has become, in many respects, the new religion of our increasingly anti-Christian, anti-God, postmodern, secular, and humanistic society today. Science today has been deified as the new God. It's called scientism, the worship of the secular, the worship of man's investigation. Now, I want to say the Christian, though, is not someone who dismisses the legitimate role of science. You say, it sounds like you're against science. Oh, no. I believe that there is a legitimate role for true scientific investigation It's part of the creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1 when God said, take dominion over the earth and subdue it. That is, man was given the responsibility of harnessing the resources that God has hidden in nature and learning how to use them to better life. But if we use science properly, it will always lead back to the worship of God. What has happened today, dear friends, is not the legitimate use of science. What has happened today is people have adopted this idea that science can answer every question, that science can explain everything. I want to say science cannot explain everything. It cannot explain the reason people have a moral compass. You know, there is a, an ethical or moral sense that people have that it's right to do certain things and it's wrong to do other things. Why is it that the Holocaust is considered across the board to be something morally evil and wrong? Why would people come to that conclusion? How can you explain that scientifically? Or why is it wrong to expose little children to the trans culture that is becoming increasingly brazen in our world today? That happened yesterday in Dallas, Texas, by the way. What gives you the right to say that something is right and something else is wrong And I want to tell you, that's a question that science cannot possibly answer. 
And science can't explain love either, can it? Is there such a thing as love? Well, can you explain that in a laboratory? Now, the scientist says, oh, yes. We can explain the chemical reaction in the brain and uh, the endocrine system. We can explain how that works to give people these emotional feelings of love. But I'll tell you, love is more than just a chemical reaction. Science cannot explain everything. There's a realm that must be addressed only by faith. So science has its place, yes, indeed, but it is not the savior of the world. Faith also has a legitimate role that it fills. I read a definition recently of a kiss, a scientific definition. Here's the way science described a kiss. A kiss is two pairs of lips approaching each other for the sake of the reciprocal transmission of microbes and carbon dioxide. <laughs> That's romantic, isn't it? Some of you brethren ought to try that out with your wives. Would you like a reciprocal transmission of microbes and carbon dioxide? That's not real romantic, is it? My beloved, there are some things science needs to stay out of and just explain it in terms of there's more to this world than what can be tangibly and empirically validated and verified. And that was enforced recently whenever I got on an airplane for the first time in a few years. I haven't flown since before the uh, shutdown. And as we rose to 20, 25,000 feet, suddenly everything that looked so big to me horizontally when I was on the earth now became increasingly small. Have you ever had that experience? As you get higher and higher and you look out the window, all of a sudden these huge mansions look like little matchboxes. And the higher you go, the more they become like a little speck. The automobiles that were so impressive to me down here, and I thought, I can't live without this automobile, suddenly became very small, like little ants. And then we got to a point I could even see them. And what appeared to be reality to me took on a new perspective as I climbed to 25 or 30,000 feet. And then I looked Instead of looking down at the ground, I looked up above me, and all I could see was blue sky as far as the eye could see, and I knew that there was more to the universe than the concrete jungle that I live in on a day-in and day-out basis. May I say, it's easy for us to become myopic and to say that reality is limited to what we can explain and see around us, but my beloved, there's more to this world and this universe than just the here and now the visible, tangible, seeable, touchable world all around us. In fact, I heard a poem recently about taking a walk in the park, and I've been unsuccessful in locating the name of the poet, but I, I want you to listen to this, and I think it may explain the point that I'm trying to make. We say there is no God quite easily. When amongst the curving steel and glass of our own proud creation, they will not argue once we were told of a heaven, but last time we strained to look up, we could see only skyscrapers shaking their heads and smiling, no, the pavement is reality. We say there is no God quite easily when walking back through man's created achievements, but on reaching the park, our attention is distracted by anthems of verse coming from the greenery we find ourselves shouting a little louder now because of the rushing streams. Our voices are rained upon by the falling leaves. 
We should not take our arguments for walks like this. The park has absolutely no manners. Very apropos, when you get out in nature and away from the skyscrapers and jackhammers and honking horns of the big city, and you get back out and you see that there's more to life than what you thought was real, you realize there's a place for faith. So only faith can adequately address the sphere of the unknown future and the invisible present. That's what verse 1 of Hebrews 11 says. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. That is, hope speaks of your future. You say, I hope for a better day. I'm hoping for a bright tomorrow. Well, faith is what stands beneath. It's the foundation, the substructure, the substance of what you hope for. You say, Brother Mike, I'm hoping for a brighter day. Well, on what basis are you hoping? Somebody says, well, I'm just hoping in the goodness of mankind. I'm telling you that foundation will crumble. But if you're hoping in the character of God, that God is sovereign, that God is eternal, that God is all-powerful, that God is all-wise, if your faith is fastened on this object, the God who is real, the God who is there, then I dare say you have a substance, a foundation on which to hope. Somebody says, you need to believe in yourself. I'm telling you, that's not an adequate foundation for faith. When I was in high school, our football team had as its motto my senior year, the expression, I believe. And we would work ourselves up into a frenzy before a football game, jumping around with our helmets saying, I believe, I believe, I believe. And we would all slap each other and say, we believe. And we did believe. We'd walk out through the door of our locker room and there was a placard up on the wall that said, I believe. And we'd all slap it and yell, I believe. Well, my football team went one, eight, and one. We won one game, lost eight, and tied one my senior year. And I never did figure out what it was we believed in. But whatever it was did not help us. It is a fact that faith is no stronger than its object. You can believe in faith. I just have faith in faith. Or you can believe in mankind. Or you can believe in yourself. Or you can believe in pixie dust. But the fact is, faith is no stronger than its object. Paul said in Acts 27, Sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. His faith was anchored in the person and character and attributes of God. Do you trust a God, my friends, who is able to create the universe by merely speaking? That's what Hebrews 11 verse 3 says. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The God merely by his creative fiat called into existence everything that you see. The things that are around us were not made by themselves. The things that are seen were not made by things which do appear. The world did not create itself. It's not self-generated. It didn't spontaneously generate itself. God made it, and he did so by merely speaking. And if he has that kind of power, you can trust a God like that. 
That's why verse 6 in our text says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe two things. Number one, that he is. That is, faith starts with the conviction that God is real. That he is. Now this is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament title, I am. You remember in Exodus 3.14 when God told Moses, I am that I am. What is your name? God says, my name is I am. And you say, well, I am what? Let's finish the sentence. And that is a complete sentence so far as God is concerned. He is the great I am, not I was. Now, some of us older folks would have to say I'm a has-been. I was. I used to be. I was quite an athlete. I was mentally astute. I was physically attractive at one point, but I'm just a shadow of my former self because age and entropy has taken a toll on my life, right? I'm an I was. Some of you young people here would say I'm a I hope to be. You have great dreams and aspirations. What do you want to be when you grow up? I hope to be a great doctor. I hope to be a school teacher. I hope to be a builder. Well, my friends, God is neither a has-been or a God who's in process of becoming, but he is always and eternally present, the great I am. He's the same right now as he's always been, and he will be that forever. He doesn't age and deteriorate, and he is not in the process of trying to become better. God is the same today that he was yesterday, and he'll be that forever. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. He's the great I am. So faith lays hold upon that truth. And it says, the God in whom I trust is real. He is. He's not just somebody the preacher talks about on Sunday. Now I wonder how many of you have come to the point that you realize that God is real. There was a time in my life when God was just somebody the preacher talked about at church. And then I would go through the rest of the week and never think about him. But you know, as I've gotten older, I've realized that I need him every hour, every moment of the day that he's there. And I have a greater awareness of his presence and his reality. And I wonder if that's true for you. Is God real to you today? Do you talk to him? Enoch walked with God by faith, not physically. It's not like he had a walk with a friend from his neighborhood and said, let's go out on our walks today. Okay, well, I'll see you tomorrow at the same time. It's not something physical, but by faith. God was so real to him that Enoch communed and fellowshiped with God every day. And Noah built a boat in a desert because he anticipated that one day it was going to rain so much that the planet would be flooded. And it had never rained before, but yet he trusted the word of God and he obeyed. He prepared an ark and everybody around him thought that he had lost his mind because his faith was anchored in a God who cannot tell a lie, a God who is truth. You see, my friends, faith is anchored in the character of God. It's anchored in the attributes of God. And it's a response to the understanding that God is real. And by the way, in philosophy, the branch that deals with what is real is called epistemology. 
of course, people may say, is love real? Is heaven real? Is hell real? And those of us who live in the skyscrapers and the concrete jungle of the inner city would have to say, no, the only thing that I know is real is traffic and honking horns and people who are trying to make money and get a step ahead of their neighbor. That's what I see as reality. But my beloved faith goes beyond, like that airplane rising in the sky and says, there's more to the world than what I can see. So he that comes to God must believe that he is. Do you believe that God is real today? And secondly, here's faith, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, is this talking about eternal salvation? No. For eternal salvation is not a reward based on anything in you or me. Eternal salvation is a gift of God's grace. God saves sinners who didn't deserve to be saved merely because it was his sovereign pleasure and purpose to do so. It's not a reward for anything that you or I have done. It's not based on your works. But I dare say the Bible does speak of God honoring those that honor him. Here's a verse in 1 Samuel 2.30. I want you to think about this. Them that honor me, I will honor, saith the Lord. One of my favorite movies as a young man growing up was Chariots of Fire. I don't know if you've seen it, the story of the English athlete Harold Abrams and the Scottish athlete Eric Little. And one man was driven by his own ambition. The other man was running for the glory of God, Eric Little. I remember before Eric Little ran a certain race, the America, an American athlete came up and put a note in his hand. And it's based on a true story. Of course, I'm sure the director and producer took some artistic license in making the movie. But he put a note in his hand. And this was legitimate. This actually happened. And he opened the note, and it had the words of 1 Samuel 2.30 written on it. It said, He that honoreth me, I will honor, saith the Lord. My beloved, God promises to honor those who trust in him, who put their faith in him. He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Are you seeking God today? If you are, it's because God has sought you first, right? No man ever seeks God until God has given him a new heart in regeneration. The natural man is not a seeker of God. Romans 3 says there is none that seeketh after God. By nature, man is not a God seeker. But if he has sought you out and found you like he found Jacob, and every sinner that's ever saved is saved this way, God found Jacob in a waste howling wilderness, and my friends, he found you wherever you were, didn't he? And quickened your heart and spoke life to your dead soul and put his love within you. You're saved because of his grace, his work. Not because of your goodness or because you took the first step or made the effort to meet him halfway. God did it. But may I say, after he has saved you, you ought to spend your life pursuing him, seeking him, seeking to learn more about him. Jesus said, seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Colossians 3.1 says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above Make this your godly ambition in life. Because when you diligently seek Him, God sees that as honoring Him. And He will honor you. He's a rewarder 
of them that diligently seek him. Now, if you want an example of that, that God honors true faith, look at these people here in Hebrews 11, verses 4 through 7 that I read just a moment ago. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. We won't get to all of them this morning. These were people that I think would tell you that God was real to them, even though they did not experience him physically. They are examples of the presence of faith even before Noah's flood. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we've been contrasting Moses' law and the new covenant. And we've been saying that the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus Christ was greater than the old covenant of the law. The gospel is the reality and the law was merely the prototype that pointed forward to the reality. But even before the law, there were people who were walking by faith, living by faith, worshiping by faith, even before Moses' law. In fact, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. Now, Hebrews 11.3 references what verse in your Old Testament? Through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God. Or what chapter does that reference? Genesis chapter 1, right? That's the creation chapter. But then in verse 4 of Hebrews 11, he moves to Genesis 4. He's going to deal with Genesis 4 and Hebrews 11.4, Genesis 5 and Hebrews 11.5, and Genesis chapters 6 through 9 and Hebrews 11.7. The first several chapters of Genesis, it's like he's going back and repeating the Bible story chronologically. He started with creation. Faith starts with creation. Now here's the point. If your faith is looking forward to the future, you say, I'm hoping that there's a heaven. I'm hoping and I, I'm trusting that the Lord's going to take care of me until then. You say, but where's the evidence for moving forward? You have to reach back to the creation and say, God made all of this around me. He made the worlds by merely speaking. And if he has done that, then he can take me forward. You see, faith first reaches back to the fact of the physical world's existence by divine creation. And then on that basis, we know that God is true to take care of us moving forward. But then he tells us, not only do you think, need to think about Genesis chapter 1, but look at Genesis 4. Here's Abel offering a sacrifice by faith. Genesis 5, here's Enoch walking with God by faith. Genesis 6 through 9, here's Noah building a boat in the desert when it had never rained by faith. And God proved each one of them correct. God rewarded those that trusted in him. He honored those that honored him. They were not left high and dry. They were not left saying, well, I wonder what happened. I thought he was going to take care of me, and he didn't. My beloved God promises to honor those that trust in him. And that's what Hebrews 11.2 means, for by it, by faith, the elders, that is our forefathers, obtained a good report. Hebrews 11 is an exposition of this verse. The rest of the chapter embellishes and expands on Hebrews 11 too. For by it the elders, which elders? Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua. The elders, our forefathers, obtained a good report. A good report from what source? The New York Times? The Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Post, the Brunswick Beacon? <laughs> no, not a good report from fellow man, a good report from God. God endorsed 
his faithful servants with his stamp of approval. And by the way, that's better than the good housekeeping seal of approval when God endorses his believing child. So he says, by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. And the first elder or forefather that he mentions in this list of the faith of our fathers is Abel. My friends, Abel worshiped God by faith. Now, let me say this real quickly. These examples of the presence of faith in the world among men, even before the flood, are evidence that the Holy Spirit was already active in regeneration in the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever run across this idea that has been promoted in some circles among our people, but it's the idea that no one was ever born of the Spirit in the Old Testament. They get that from John 7 where it says that the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And they fail to understand that, that, that there's a difference in the Holy Spirit's work or ministry associated with the everlasting covenant of grace. He's been doing that since there's been a, an elect child of God who needed to be born again. And his new covenant ministry to the church or to believers, he's the comforter outlined in John 14 through 16. In a special sense, he's come to empower and mediate the presence of Christ to the church. So they fail to distinguish between what preachers back in my home country used to call the two functions of the Holy Spirit. They fail to rightly divide that subject. But anyway, there's been the idea that the Holy Spirit did not actually regenerate or no one was actually born again until the New Testament. That's that idea. Well, this should dismiss that idea outright because if faith is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, now the fruit of the Spirit of these, love, joy, peace, uh, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness and temperance, if faith is one of the products of the Holy Spirit's influence and presence, faith is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, then you can't have faith unless you have what? The Holy Spirit. So where you see faith in Abel, way back yonder in Genesis chapter 4, that's near the front of your Bible, and in Enoch, Genesis chapter 5, and in Noah, Genesis chapter 6, and in Abraham, Genesis 12 and following, when you see faith, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit was active, quickening hearts, finding God's children and regenerating them. They were born again the same way we're born again by the direct and immediate work of the Holy Spirit in new birth. So here is evidence that the Holy Spirit was active in regeneration, even in the Old Testament. Let's talk briefly about Abel, and we'll close our time together this morning. Abel's faith laid hold or apprehended the reality of God, and it honored God in several different ways. First, his faith led him to be obedient to God. Verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain did. Do you remember that story, Genesis 4? I won't take time to read it this morning, but go back and read the story of Cain and Abel. What happened? In the process of time, Abel brought a firstling of his flock. Abel was a shepherd, like our Lord Jesus is the good shepherd of the sheep. And when he came to worship God, what did he bring? He brought a sacrifice, an innocent lamb to die as a substitute 
through the shedding of blood, he brought a firstling of his flock. Cain was a tiller of the ground. He was a farmer. And Cain brought of the fruit of his ground, his harvest, he brought a fruit salad. (laughs) And it says in Genesis chapter 4 that God had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering, God had not respect, and it made Cain mad. He became jealous of his brother, and do you remember what happened? Cain rose up and he slew, he murdered his brother. Abel is the first martyr killed for his faith in the Bible. Cain was upset. Now, you say, why was he so upset? Because he knew that God accepted Abel and his offering. But you see, the text says Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. And that means that he offered his sacrifice according to God's revelation. And Cain decided that he would do what he wanted to do, that he would offer a sacrifice of his own making. You see, God is serious about how he intends to be worshipped. And he doesn't allow human innovation. He doesn't allow you decide how you want to serve me. You see, this is the problem in all of humanity. Mankind, because he's a sinner, does not like the way that God has revealed it. And he's constantly rebelling against that and trying to innovate this maverick spirit that's in his heart. He wants to come up with his own sacrifice. You say, well, where had Abel learned that God wanted a blood sacrifice? What our text says, a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Where had Abel learned that? He learned it when God slew an animal to clothe his parents, Adam and Eve. Remember Genesis 3? Adam and Eve had sinned. God didn't say, well, you just try to sew your own fig leaves and make yourself aprons. That'll do. Those aprons, my beloved, didn't work. Only thing that would cover their nakedness was for God to clothe them with an animal skin. And for him to do that required what? The shedding of what? Blood. An innocent animal had to die so that the skin could be taken to clothe Adam and Eve, to hide their nakedness. There's a picture in that of what would happen at the cross. When the Lamb of God, the innocent Lamb of God, Jesus Christ would be sacrificed as the substitute for guilty sinners like you and me. And his righteousness would be imputed to us so that we are covered today not by anything that we've done, but we're covered by what God has provided through the innocent Lamb of God, through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. God respected Abel's faith which led him to obey God because his sacrifice was according to God's word. 1 John 3.12 says that Cain was of that wicked one, the devil. And he slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Why did he kill Abel? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now listen to the text, Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith means that he was acting on the word of God. He was acting on what God had revealed pleased him. Instead of innovating and deciding he would just do what he wanted to do, Abel decided to do things the way God had prescribed. If God is pleased with the substitutionary sacrifice of an innocent animal 
for the guilty, then I will bring the firstling of my flock. He did that by faith, according to the word of God. And it says, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Now, witness from what source? From the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Brunswick Beacon? No. Witness from God himself. God testifying of his gifts. What you have here is a biblical example of justification by faith in which God is declaring someone to be righteous because faith is the evidence of a righteous heart. I want you to notice his faith did not justify him, but his faith was evidence that he was righteous. Where you see faith and I don't want to get too technical, but where you see faith in the lives of your brethren, in your own heart, that's an evidence that God has already touched you and that you're righteous in the sight of God. Now I look in the mirror and I think Mike Goins is not righteous. But then I hear the gospel preached and something in me believes it and I respond to it and I embrace it and I rejoice in it. And that's faith. That's an evidence that I'm righteous before God. By which, when Abel obeyed God, by his faith, he obtained witness that he was righteous. In other words, he obtained blessed assurance that Jesus Christ was his righteousness, distinguishing him from his evil brother. And God honored his faith by giving him the assurance of forgiveness of sins. And it says, by which he being dead yet speaketh. Abel's case continues to testify to us today that though faith may in fact lead to persecution, for he was again the first martyr who was killed for his faith, yet Abel's faith tells us this world is not all that there is and that the Lord was more precious to Abel than life itself. That's the story that continues to be witnessed to us today by which he being dead yet speaketh the memory of this just man endureth forever. It is blessed, as Proverbs 10, 7 says, and God honored Abel with blessed assurance. Yes, Abel's faith cost him life in this world, but we can be assured, my beloved, that he immediately, when his eyes closed in death, he immediately entered the real presence of the God that he worshiped, at which point his faith turned to sight, and he saw the Lamb of God for himself. The lamb whose sacrifice had paid the price of his admission into heaven. Is that, my beloved, adequate compensation for trusting God? Absolutely. God honors those that honor him. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him.
to thee.